near-death experience podcast, an ongoing exploration of spiritually transformative experiences, including NDEs and other phenomena, in order to elucidate the ineffable and better understand our spirituality. All episodes are available at ndepodcast.org. The views expressed and opinions given by the individual hosts and guests are not necessarily those of NDE Podcast, the NDERF, any sponsors, or for that matter, anyone else. In the end, the only opinion that really matters is yours. Welcome to Near-Death Experience Podcast, the official source of audio accounts for the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. I'm Chaz Hathaway, author of Life in the Spirit World, What Near-Death Experiences May Teach About Life on the Other Side. Today, we are going to share the experience of James from Enderf.org, the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation website. James says... I've never thought of these experiences as near-death experiences. Nothing like a health situation or a traumatic life-threatening event ever occurred at any time, and certainly not at the time of these events, which I have called mystical experiences, occurred. I am compelled to write to you, however, because the little bit that I have read about the subject of NDE has shown me that many people describe their near-death experiences that resulted from heart attack, car accident, etc. in a way that closely resembles the way I describe experiences I have had beginning in May 1961. My intentions prayers requesting God to reveal himself to me, and all the information I had received about God from adults in my life left me completely unprepared for what occurred in May of 1961. I wasn't thinking of anything different that morning, and I could never have imagined the nature of the experience that was about to come to me. I had been praying for several years for God to visit me, Imagining an experience much like my grandmother's Jesus, who showed up at the foot of her bed in the middle of the night with a comforting message. For me, this was not to be. Okay, everybody hustle out to the field and divide yourself into groups, my teacher yelled from the locker room door. It was springtime in New York, and we held physical education class outside to take advantage of the beautiful weather. I was 13 years old, and this was a beautiful day to be alive. The sky was clear and bright blue. The air was possessed of that clean, indescribable smell of freshness as new life sprang forth all around. First two squads to get on the handball courts. Everybody else take a seat here by the fence and rotate onto the courts to replace the losers. This was the second year that my teacher taught physical education class. I was in the 8th grade. He was a good teacher, but I didn't like Jim. I didn't like the perceived dangers of athletic endeavors. I still had to be here, dressed in my red shorts and t-shirt. I remember talking to my friend John Fitz, Fitzpatrick, for a few minutes, and then I leaned my head back against the chain-link fence and breathed in the smell of the grass wafting up through the warm air. 
I looked out at the handball courts and momentarily observed the action of the players smacking the ball against the wall with their open palms. I moved my eyes upward to a, the clear blue sky. In this very moment of observing the sky and feeling the simple beauty of the soft breeze blowing across my face, my life changed. Something shifted that forever altered my perception of life. The experience was ineffable, and I am unable to describe the moment. I can only interpret the experience into words in an attempt to communicate something meaningful about a profound insight into the nature of the very ground of being. This was a non-experiential experience. The experience had no content, so there was nothing to have an experience of in the classical sense that we understand experience. Something happened, and according to outside observers, it took time for it to happen. In the classical understanding of the experience, I experienced nothing. I became purely subject, to, and no thoughts exist in this oneness. There exists only one and no other. This one always is, and this one cannot be explained, understood, or experienced by the rational human mind. White light is what I remember, and the simplest way I can explain the moment is to say, I saw God. This is what I ultimately came to understand as a mystical experience, but at the time, I had never heard of such a thing. This is what Siddhartha Gautama, Jesus Christ, Meher Baba, and others were talking about. This is what Meister Eckhart wrote about, only I didn't know about Eckhart at the time. It is what I have referred to as a non-experiential experience, and there is nothing to be remembered. The moment is eternally now, and memory serves no function. I am, however, left with impressions. I sense that in some way I was exposed to pure information at a rate that far overloads the capacity of any physical entity. It was all that is, all at once, and it is love. I remember that immediately upon regaining some sense of what we know as normal waking consciousness, I felt loved, immersed in love, carried by love. I perceived that I was made from love, and that everything else was made of the same stuff. My first impressions upon coming back to objective experience were filled with unconditional love and a sense of complete well-being. I knew that all of us were one being, not parts of one being that were somehow connected, but all of us are that one being. I knew beyond doubt that we each contain within us all the creative power of the universe, and that the world can occur for us in any way we choose. I felt like I was dreaming, that what I was experiencing was being dreamt. I was part of some great being's dream, and I perceived that both were true all at the same time. Then I realized that time was passing. I was part of the temporal world again, 
and things were happening that I might want to know about. It was simply a fleeting realization, and I was in bliss, so I forgot about it. I realized that I had no weight, that I was floating around freely without a body, and it was great. Then I thought it rather unusual that I would have no body, and I thought perhaps this issue warranted further investigation. I had no good reason why I should think about it, but I started to think about it and realized that I was in a reality totally different from the other one at the handball court. I didn't know where or what it was, and I was not afraid. I knew that everything was perfect, better than ever, although I now understood that I was not in my body. I was not in my body, and I had a choice about it. I could remain out of my body and go back into it. It was a free choice, and either way was perfect. My immediate desire was to remain where I was because it was beautiful. Then I realized that making that choice would give people on earth the impression that I was dead. Indeed, my body would be dead, and I would never know what I was going to be able to get into in my future on earth. Then I regained a sense of direction, looked down, and saw the scene I had recently been part of. All at once, my awareness shifted from the ineffable white light of absolute oneness to floating 300 feet above my body. I could see the entire scene at high school in full view that May morning. I was not frightened or even surprised by this amazing view. It occurred to me like this was one way to perceive our world, but most of us don't know how to see it like this. Everyone was down there by the fence, gathering around my body, and everyone looked very small. My teacher was right in front of my body, looking very concerned. I was pretty far away, but I could tell by his nervous, rapid motion that he was concerned about something. His concern was wasted on me, I thought, because my life couldn't be better. Then I knew that if I chose to stay in my body, I needed to get there right now, and if I didn't, I would not be going back to it, ever. I would be dead. There was no fear attached to the thought, simply the reality that this is how it was, and it was up to me, as it always is. The very next thing I knew, I was damp, cold, and heavy. I looked out of my eyes once again, and my teacher was happier. I heard him tell someone to help get me into the nurse's office. I tried to move, but nothing happened. I tried to talk to tell them everything was perfect, but I couldn't get words to come out. My thoughts were clear, and I was conscious of the fact that I couldn't get the thoughts to come out of my mind in spite of my efforts. I was not sleepy, dizzy, groggy, or in any way mentally incapacitated. The connection between my mind and my body was not functioning like it usually did, and I noticed it and could do nothing about it. Some of the guys carried me to the nurse's office and sat me in a chair. I felt coherent in my mind, but my body occurred as a huge mass of cold, heavy clay. The sensation was confusing. Part of me knew that I was in great shape. Another part of me was beginning to 
fear that something out of my control was going on. The nurse asked me what my phone number was, and I could speak it in my mind, but I was able only to mumble unintelligibly. The nurse pushed the phone closer to my side of the desk, and with much difficulty, I finally dialed the number. My thoughts about the whole situation were changing rapidly, and I wanted to get up and walk out of there, but could not even speak and could barely dial the telephone. I had to focus on my moving on moving my finger from one number to the other in the dialing ring. And it was only with great difficulty that my finger made the movements necessary to dial the phone. The nurse had to do the talking and ask my mother to come to the school right away. I was pretty spaced out for the next couple of days, and I was examined by our family doctor twice, on the day of the event and again the following day. He came to the house with his black tag or with his black bag both times. The doctor told my mother that he could find nothing unusual with my health, and nothing that could have caused the kind of symptoms I described. The doctor finally suggested that perhaps I was bitten by a poisonous spider of some kind. I told him that I was not bitten. After three days, I was fine, and my body worked and felt like normal. I was excited and wanted to tell the world what I knew about God, and I did. I knew that God was not a judgmental man sitting in heaven sending people to hell, others to heaven, and still others to purgatory. I knew without doubt that God was simultaneously in and through everything, above and around everything. I knew that what I called God was always with me, never left me, and lived inside me. I knew that in some sense, I was this God, and God was me. I knew that the rules and regulations of my religion were not God's word. God gave me a completely different way of conducting myself on earth, and he asked me to talk with people about what he had shown me. The single most prominent thought I came away with was, everything is one. There is only one something, and everything is that. This experience became the central focus of my life and consumed most of my time in the study of physics, anthropology, geology, archaeology, and ultimately earning a bachelor's of science degree in philosophy and religious studies so I could better understand and connect with the reality of the depths and truth of this experience. As a 17-year-old freshman at St. Norbert College in West Dupere, Wisconsin, in 1965, I started reading Meister Eckhart, St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, and other Christian mystics, including Teilhard de Chardin. They described experiences that resembled mine, and I started to think that I was not crazy, and had actually experienced what I thought I had, what I knew as God. Then I got interested in the Eastern mystics, then in the religions themselves, Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism, Sufism, Jainism, Shinto, and then Zen, which had the biggest impact on me because of the notion of direct experience right now. Zen removes all concepts, all words, all judgments, 
and goes directly to experience of true nature. Zen states that this reality right now, whatever one's experience in any given moment happens to be, is all there is. The ultimate experience of what we may call God is possible only here and now. In the fall of my sophomore year at Norbert, I had my hair cut at my usual barber just off campus. Just before getting out of the chair, I flashed into the Eternal One, just as I had five years earlier. I sat there in the chair for some period of time that seemed very short to me based upon what was happening in the shop, and then I came back to normal waking consciousness. I was not paralyzed this time, nor could I have had an out-of-body experience. The shift from the state of pure subjectivity and unity to normal waking consciousness was smooth and apparently instant, just like it was when I went from this material reality into a non-physical one. I was a little shaky when I got up. By the time I walked down the block and was across the street from the Catholic grammar school, my head spun and I vomited on the ground. The kids and nuns were out on the playground, but I don't think they noticed me. I went to class about 30 minutes after this, and was not really present to the situation or to any situations until the next day, a Tuesday. The third time this spontaneous experience came upon me was when everything came together for me. I was in the U.S. Air Force in Thailand. I finished my 12 hours on the flight line at 6 a.m. I pedaled my bicycle home, walked upstairs out onto my balcony into the beautiful into the beauty of a new day, looked up at the white clouds in the blue sky, and was one once again, and then heard myself say, this is exactly what I experienced at 13, and again at 18, and this is God. I taught myself to meditate at 19, and practiced it for 40 years. I've had many such experiences, and many other different ones during the years. Many spontaneous insights over the years are confirmed by quantum mechanical theory and empirical evidence. Now, and for the past few years, all of day-to-day experience has slowed down and smoothed out. The presence of the God-Self is always available and generally perceived right here, right now, as I move through the amazing day-to-day moments of my life. That is the end of James's account. Wow. Wow, that's, that's all I can say. This is interesting because uh, James's experience was not accompanied by a nearly dying experience. But it is absolutely consistent with the kind of experiences that are Um, experienced in a near-death experience. Um, Very much a spiritually transformative experience. And not just in the sense of seeing and experiencing something, but in the change that it caused James. Now, James is just in PE class. You know, he's in his physical education class waiting for his turn to go and play handball. And he's not even interested in playing 
really, it sounds like. He's not a big fan of P.E. And yet, as he's sitting there, just kind of looking at the beautiful sky in front of him and and kind of taking in the uh, beauty of all around him and kind of the uh, the um, uh, uniqueness of it and the, the feeling of, you know, just just the general beauty of nature and so forth kind of sense. I think we're familiar with that, most of us. And, uh, and in that, he is swallowed up in an experience. Now, it's interesting to me that even after having this experience of even feeling himself leave his body and fly around freely and being knowing that he can stay out there as long as he wants and being all encompassed in sense of unconditional love, which he can't seem to get enough of. He can't seem to um, help but want to describe this sense, even though it is just so ineffable, it, beyond words. He can't do it, but he's, he's trying, and we're grateful for that. But uh, then, when he comes back, it's kind of interesting. He's not able to move. And though he may be able to barely mumble a few, you know, sounds, it sounds like, and barely able to tap his phone number into a phone, beyond that, he is paralyzed. Now, I don't know. This may be... Um, you know, you can't diagnose things from the past and uh, and so forth. But uh, it, to those of you who are members of, of the same church as I attend, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you may find an interesting parallel here to a person in the Book of Mormon that uh, we refer to as Alma the Younger. He has a grand mystical experience uh, wherein he sees an angel, and then he is for three days. And, and, it, and it's kind of unclear whether he's having this experience for three days or whether he has um, this incredible experience and then paralyzed for three days. But following his experience, he is paralyzed for three days, unable to move. And uh, his father and, and you know friends and so forth are praying over him. But I just found this an interesting parallel because this seems to be exactly what's going on with James here. He is having this incredible mystical experience. His body is as if dead. And even when he returns to his body, he's paralyzed. He still has this sense of oneness, this love, this all-consuming uh, concept of God and and his mercy and love and perfection and this oneness with the universe and so forth, but he is somewhat paralyzed. And it's unclear whether at some point he snaps out of it or if he just starts slowly getting his his um, motion back. It, it's kind of unclear, but I just thought that was worth mentioning um, because we want to find parallels. You know, you think of, of Paul in the Bible when he is struck um, by seeing a light. And though he is not paralyzed, he does experience several days of blindness. You know, it, it, part of him is completely hampered for a time. And um, maybe that's 
maybe you would call this an after effect. Maybe you would just call it a, you know, it's also possible that something happened, some kind of seizure that knocked him out, sent him into a near-death experience. And, uh, you know, and this would be probably a still seizure, some kind of, unless he just wasn't there to see it himself. He may have left his body. um, And, you know, it reminds me of if you've if you've not listened to it, go find it because it's so cool. The experience of I don't remember her name, but uh, um, I, she gives a TED talk talking about experiencing a stroke, and in this experience, she is a um, neurosurgeon. So she, you know, studying strokes is her work. That's what she does, and so when she starts having a stroke, she knows what's happening. But her descriptions of it are fascinating. And there does seem to be this sense of oneness taking place. Now, medically, you will often hear people say, oh, well, there you go. That's what was happening, some kind of stroke. He's having this sense of of oneness with the universe because there's this displacement um, that takes place uh, when you're having a stroke and so forth. But there's two ways you can look at that. One is... You feel detached because your body is breaking. Okay, that's that's what they're trying to say. The other is that your body is breaking and therefore you are detaching. Your spirit is either leaving your body or has partially left your body. It could be that it became detached from your body, but is still there present with it for a time. And so you're in this spirit form, but in the body, which it seems like is probably what was happening for a time for James. Now, I don't know if that's exactly what's happening, but we sometimes try to use these medical explanations to explain away the spiritual elements that we experience from these. But we can flip that and say, well, sure, you're having these spiritual experiences. Your body is deta- or your spirit is detaching from your body. You're going to have some kind of of sense of oneness. You're going to feel detached because you are detached. It's more than just a medical condition taking place and, and your mind trying to interpret it and therefore interprets it as feeling like your spirit has left its, its body. It's that your spirit has left its body and, and you're experiencing it as such. Now, are there going to be reactions in the brain, you know, where, oh, this, you know, gland is shut down and this, you know, uh, starved oxygen area is going to, you know, flood the mind with light and so forth. Sure, sure, that can absolutely happen. And it's not, it's not an explanation in the sense that that's why you're experiencing what you're experiencing, but rather because of what you're experiencing, it's causing the brain to do this. So we, we should look at that both ways instead of just saying, oh, well, it's just this happening. If oxygen is cut off to your brain, yes, it can give a sensation of light and whatever. But perhaps leaving your body or becoming detached from your body and seeing a light can cause oxygen deprivation to the brain. Or, or it could be that in dying, you're experiencing oxygen deprivation, which kills you and gives you this sense of light and so forth. And 
I don't know if that's making sense, but <laughs> what I'm trying to say is there's two ways to look at any medical explanation for what's going on. And I think we do ourselves a disservice assuming one and ignoring the other. So, anyway, um, his experience is also very interesting because of not just the, the after effects of being able to return to this kind of experience often, which is, wow, what a great blessing, or at least, I shouldn't say often, but it happening on occasion, you know, during either meditation or during moments of seeing grand natural beauty and so forth. That, that uh, oneness with everything clicks, and then he's like, oh, this is what I experienced, exactly what I experienced when I was a kid, and so forth. But also, also, he takes on this great interest in spiritual things, in religion, in philosophy, in finding and, and recognizing and studying the truths that can be found in various uh, disciplines, religious and spiritual disciplines and philosophical. Partly probably because he wants to connect with it again. Partly also because he wants an explanation for it. Partially probably also because he just feels drawn to it. I, I hate to use this as an example because I've always had a sense of weird morbidity about the show. But you remember the show Close Encounters of the Third Kind where the guy is driving down the road and something overhead catches his attention and he and he rolls down his window and looks out and this alien spaceship flashes some lights you know and and then flies away and he's like what on earth just happened and then as time goes by there is this draw and like an insatiable curiosity towards finding out more about what's going on with this alien thing. It's more than just, oh, guess what I saw? It was so weird. Blah, blah, blah. It was like, I've got to reconnect with this. I've got to know what this is. I've got to become one with it. Now, the reason I find the show to be um, really kind of disturbing is because, you know, the aliens fly down. They plant in him this growing obsession to be part of what they are and do what they do, which eventually breaks his home life. Well, and literally buries his home <laughs> in this uh, mountain thing that, anyway, um, breaks his family life, and eventually he goes and joins them. And it's like this dream come true for him to join them. And I've always thought it, that is so sick. They plant in him this obsession that is fulfilled by his leaving the planet. You know, it's like, it's not even his dream. It's, it's being planted in him. And then he goes on to, you know, ah, it's like a weird mind control thing. Okay, that's why there's a morbid <laughs> sensation around that movie, particularly. But I use that as an example because um, it's almost as if when someone has a near-death experience, it plants in them just a touch of that interest, that obsession if you will, with spiritual things. And I don't think of it as a morbid, <laughs> frightening kind of a thing here, because we come from this. 
it's not aliens coming from space and you know planting an obsession in us it is us being eternal beings coming to earth forgetting all of it and then having just a little sample of it which draws us into this obsession with finding out who we really are because we know that's who we really are we know that that grand oneness that this perfection is where we came from so i i i can't help wonder if that's a little bit what's happening to many of us as we feel drawn to these experiences to the feeling a sense of closeness with god a, a desire to be one with him a desire to connect with him we should nurture that desire we should pray we should meditate we should seek him in study and in exercising faith in looking out at the beautiful horizon before us and trying to connect with god as james did will it happen at the extent that james happened with james I, i don't know that's that's not up to me and for James I'm sure that he many times after his first experience looked out and tried to reconnect with it and and probably remembered the the feelings but maybe didn't have a full reconnection except on rare occasions where it would just happen to happen again but I think there's value in in seeking God is what I'm saying there's value in trying to find God in the beautiful everyday experiences of our lives because he is there from what james says he is every bit a part of us every day everywhere we go even when we feel lonely even when we feel abandoned and left behind it's not that we have been left behind it's that we're just feeling that right now and there will be opportunities to reconnect with that while in our mortal lives and in those moments let's savor them and let's remember those moments so that when we again are faced with feelings of loneliness we can recognize that this is only temporary this entire life is only temporary and what we have to do while we're here is too important to cut it short but we can look forward with hope and anticipation for the day to come when we will again reunite with god and the universe and with that thank you again all of you for listening